I regret to inform you that this will be the final episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. For a week or so, nobody panic. As we're nearing the end of summer, and as the end of the year is approaching, and further as my vacation days are use it or lose it, I choose the former over the latter. As a result, there will be a week or so where I won't be dropping any new episodes as I'm planning on enjoying time with friends and family. As I suggested earlier this summer, go back and listen to episodes you've unacceptably missed, re-listen to your many, many favorites, and make sure you're subscribed so you're notified when I drop the next new episode. And on a serious note, let me take this opportunity to thank each and every one of you that take the time to participate in the workings of my mind. Now, on with the show. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. A wise man once said, so the best way to get something done, if you if you hold a near and dear to you that you uh um like to be able to anyway. And I think that pretty much sums up the current situation that you and I find ourselves in under the leadership such as it is of our elected officials on the right and the left. The best way to get something done, hey, don't worry about it. Just do what we tell you to. We'll set the course, we'll plow ahead. Don't ask questions, like it or not, just do it. This country and this world is being shoved in a general desired direction in all aspects of life, but much like a dam that takes the full force of a river and redirects and focuses the energy for good, we too can take these forces and refocus them if we're paying attention and we're ready to act and react in ways that are counter to what's expected. On today's episode, first we'll see how pain at the pump could bring wealth not seen for a long time. And then we'll see how for every action, there could be an equal or greater opposite reaction. And then we'll start to see the great minds of the past working out something brand new. So, pull out that budget form I know all you Dave Ramseyites, Ramseyans, have close at hand. Lower your shoulder and open your American history books to page for a minute. Because the time to ready ourselves is now, and here we go. So when is good news not good news? Give up? When the government's involved. Huh? Yeah? No. No, I know that's not funny at all. Look, I know that all politicians spin everything to their advantage with no regard, not even a second thought about the truth. Just spin like one of those ice skater dancers when they hunch down into a little tiny spinning orb and then stand up straight and tall and go faster than the speed of light, somehow without throwing up, right? So we obviously all know about the Putin price hike. I mean, it's all the rage right now. We've been hearing about how that nasty evil Putin invaded the neat and tidy, almost angelic country of Ukraine for months now, and how that alone is the sole reason our gas prices have escalated, and nothing else. And how our federal government is helpless. They've thrown all the levers, pressed all the buttons, climbed every mountain. They've sold a massive amount of our strategic petroleum reserves to Europe and China, because that makes sense. I mean, even poor Scotty 
was seen in the basement of the White House crying, I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. She can't take any more. But as luck would have it, well, not luck so much, let's say divine guidance by dear leader, President Child Sniffer, there apparently was more, as they now are touting the fact that since the middle of June, gas prices have been steadily dropping. And we absolutely know that this is only because our government is absolutely run by competent, seasoned, knowledgeable professionals that absolutely understand how the world and our country works and know the right things to do, the correct glass to break in case of emergency, and definitely not run by a bunch of gender-confused, millennial-degenerate woke Marxists that just want to see the country burned down so they can remake it in the image of Stalin or Che. The peak of the gasoline price crisis, so far, was around June 13th, when the average in the United States was about $5.10 for every single solitary gallon you splashed into your tongue-hanging-out-dehydrated-on-death's-doorstep gas tank. Since then, as of the time I'm piecing this together, July 30th, AAA says the national average is all the way down to $4.23 per gallon, so an admittedly stellar drop of $0.87 cents per gallon in a month and a half. Now, what we shan't do is talk about how the price was $3.25 per gallon a year ago, or about a dollar lower for those of you that are mathematically challenged, or that it was $2.80 per gallon three years ago, right before COVID hit, which is nearly $1.50 lower than it is today. I see no need in mentioning any of that, nor do I feel the need to mention the fact that the first thing President Wears My Pants did it when he wobbled into offices shakily scrawl what passes for his signature on an order to kill the Keystone Pipeline, or that he then canceled leases and stopped drilling on federal lands and pretty much slapped his hands together and threw up two of the biggest birds the world has ever seen, all directed to the oil and gas industry, and by extension, the entire American population. No point in mentioning that, because despite the belly aching by those of us unenlightened, low-IQ, flat-earth, right-wing cavemen, we've weathered the storm, and all things are now right as rain. They fixed it. At this point, I'll ask that you join me in laying out your prayer rug facing Washington, D.C., or really Wilmington, Delaware, as that's where he goes most of the time and in order to get whatever treatments he's getting to try to keep what's left of his brain working without the cadre of doctors involved having to sign into any official logs. Either way, let's all bow down and worship Dear Leader for being so good to us. Eh, but hold up a tick. Found on foxbusiness.com headline, High gas prices leading American drivers to shift lifestyle habits. Huh. Well, this does throw a spanner in the works, doesn't it? The American people are changing what they're doing because of high gas prices. Now, that seems unthinkable, but let's see what the not-to-be-trusted Fox article has to say. It turns out, as found in a survey, 64% of adults have altered their driving habits or lifestyles since March because of the increased fuel cost. Side note, on February 28th, the cost was $3.70 per gallon, and by April 7th, it had shot up to $4.19 per gallon, peaking at around $4.41 per gallon in mid-March. So for all intents and purposes, the same price we're paying today, on average. Of those that said they've altered their lifestyle in some way, nearly all said they were trying to drive less. Three-quarters said they were combining errands, and just over half have reduced shopping trips or trips to dine out. 
Additionally, according to AAA, three of 10 drivers have postponed vacations because of the gas prices, although a Fox News poll said more than half have done this. Now, gas prices aren't solely directed by crude oil prices. There are a lot of taxes and other garbage in there as well, but the price at the pump generally rises and falls with the cost of crude oil. Well, I should say, always quickly rises with, and usually slightly falls, with the price of crude. And as such, the peak of U.S. crude was nearly $125 per barrel in March, dropping some, then coming back to nearly that price again in June, but has been generally under $100 a barrel for most of July. In comparison, a year ago it was sitting at about $68 per barrel, and three years ago, right before COVID, it was at about $55 per barrel. But why has it dropped somewhat now, and why have gas prices come down recently? Is it because of levers being thrown by this administration? Eh, no. They've done nothing. Literally, the only thing they've done is make us more vulnerable by selling what used to be our strategic reserve, you know, just in case we'd get embroiled in some sort of war somewhere, which I can't even fathom happening, and constantly tell us that what we think we see, we definitely don't see, and that the price we're paying for gas is normal and everything is fine, and you're just imagining things when you think your money isn't going as far, and just shut up, stop asking questions, and quit your whining. No, the reason the prices have fallen is very simple. Capitalism, supply and demand, or should I say demand destruction. Even in our severely mutated form of capitalism, the simple concept of supply and demand holds true. The article quotes AAA spokesman Andrew Gross, quote, Crude prices declined last week as the market continues to worry that weak demand, which was expected to remain robust throughout the summer, could continue to push prices lower. The prices are dropping because the American people are adapting, which is fine in theory, but is it a good thing? Well, partially, I mean, truth be told, the majority of Americans are at least somewhat wasteful in how we spend our money. I know, not everyone, but I'm comfortable saying the majority of us. If you were to look at all the things you spend your money on over the course of the month, how many things could you legitimately do without, and what kind of income would you need to just survive were you to cut out all of that extraneous spending? So if this were a short-term issue but taught us a long-term lesson, debt could be paid down and maybe off, savings could be increased, financial emergencies could become financial blips. But when the change of lifestyle is forced upon us out of necessity, and what we're experiencing right now isn't going to be short-term, well... That's when it's not really good at all from a human standpoint. Even more, when you have your elected leaders saying that it'll be okay, people have savings they can use. Well, that's not the answer, especially when they're doing nothing that makes sense to right the ship. Honestly, one of the best things that can be done is to raise interest rates to try to stop the value of our money from dropping further, which is being done at a rate not seen in a long time. Unfortunately, that will also cause fewer loans at higher rates and higher prices on everything. But as people will stop buying as much and will start to cut out necessities, the prices will drop. As of June, two-thirds of Americans reported at least dipping into their savings already, with 8% of Americans saying the well is dry and they've used all that they've saved. With our GDP contracting, and with us definitely in a recession, despite the spin the current administration wants to put on it, and inflation running wild, we're heading for a deflation and possibly a depression. You simply can't print, tax, spend, borrow, and shuffle money around to get to prosperity. And yet that's what we're doing. 
As of right now, we have a total debt in this country of over $30 trillion. Per person, every man, woman, child, and baby, for every citizen of the United States, that's a debt of nearly $92,000 each. Per taxpayer, it's nearing $250,000 each. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is at uh, 130% and rising. In the year 2000, it was at 57%. I don't believe any country has ever had a GDP ratio like this and survived in the past. And the waste and corruption is out of control and has been for a very long time. Rand Paul puts out his Festivus report at the end of every year that highlights the wasted money, our tax dollars, that are in the budget or continuing resolution as we haven't actually had a budget in many years, and at the end of 2021, Dr. Paul highlighted over $52.5 billion in waste. You can read his report if you'd like, but I'll highlight some items to give you an idea of what our money is going for. And I have to believe that if we really boiled it down, really dug in, there's a lot more waste that really needs to be cut out. Here are some projects and studies that cost us money because some lobbyist got some congressperson to uh, slip it in there. A COVID grant for New York City to display art around the city. The Department of Defense constructed border walls in the Middle East and North Africa. USAID paid for Korean kids to take a vacation and come to D.C. for a visit. The State Department translated books into the Georgian language. The State Department taught French people about American culture. The NIH, we love the NIH, they studied pigeons playing slot machines. The State Department funded green energy programs in Africa. We funded the Wilson Center so they could throw parties for congressmen. The NIA, and I'm not sure what that is, and I don't really care, did a study to verify that people hearing bad news de decreased their happiness. We planted trees in New York City. The NIDDK, and I really have no idea what that one is, did a study that showed kids crave junk food, and if exposed to it, actually gained weight. The FDA fattened eels so humans could eat them. And the list goes on. Back to the topic at hand, demand destruction. The problem right now, the reason gas prices are going down, is because people aren't driving as much. They're not going on vacations and spending money. They're not going to the store and spending money. They're not stopping at the gas pump as often and spending money. As a result, not as much gas is being used, so the supply goes up, the cost comes down. Great! But also, vacation-related spending and thus income for businesses is down. Store inventory is sitting on the shelves or hanging on the racks longer, costing the owners money forcing them to stock and restock less. With less product moving, that means less trucks are needed to bring in the fewer deliveries, which results in less diesel needed to run the trucks. So diesel will also come down in price. But again, not, not for a good reason. We're a nation that's built on consumerism. That's not some philosophical or spiritualistic commentary. Our nation is literally built on the fact that we love to spend money on stuff. I don't think that's breaking news to anyone. From medicines to computer chips to baby food to toilet paper, we've all learned as of late, if we didn't know this before, that we just don't manufacture a lot of stuff in this country. We do manufacture some, we do some assembly, but we clearly aren't in a position where we could sustain ourselves at our current mix of manufacturing and consuming. So our economy runs on the fact that we're addicted to money and addicted to stuff. Generally speaking, we love money. One could say that generally speaking, we have a love of money. It seems to me I've heard of something like that before, and it didn't bode well for those partaking of the loving of money. Can't put my finger upon where I've 
heard that before. It doesn't matter. So the costs of some things are going up. Some are going down. But the issue goes beyond just prices, expendable cash, and reality. The perception of our individual financial health is changing as well. With a recession and potentially depression, people will start to try to hang on to cash where they can. Although that cash will be used to pay for necessities, as that demand rarely goes down, the cost to produce, process, and ship, etc. goes up. So a lot of the mass consumerism goes down. Businesses lose income. Profit goes down. Jobs can be cut. The smaller businesses go out of business, causing more unemployment, more economic pressure, etc. It's a vicious cycle. The only experience we have with something like what appears to be coming is what we called the Great Depression. Now, the rest of the world also went into a depression at that time, but they just called it a depression. We're the only country that called ours the Great Depression. Again, nearly everything that was done at that time was also wrong, and two things actually got us out of the Great Depression, the war and a different president. The social programs, the price-fixing, the government intervention— are what actually resulted in our going through the great, rather than just a, depression. Even more problematic is that we, the American public, have been conditioned to rely on the government to fix things, and they've done everything they could to enact forced charity. They tax us, take those dollars, spend them on a lot of garbage, and sort of fund the social programs, you know, like SNAP or food stamps, unemployment insurance, Medicare, and the list goes on and on. And because of that, people have been conditioned to be less charitable, and as things get harder, charity will be sacrificed for personal comfort than personal survival. Before the government took over their version of charity, if a person ran on hard times, they would first look to family for short-term assistance and long-term help to get them back on their feet as quickly as possible. If there was no family or the family couldn't or refused to help, a person could then turn to the church for the same kind of short and long-term help. At this point in our history, going back to family is practically unheard of. It happens, but that's the anomaly, not the norm. There are churches and charitable organizations that do help, but ask any of them what kind of budget they're running on. They're typically struggling to keep the doors open as well, and many of them rely on government subsidies of some sort also. So yeah, I'm happy with gas prices trending lower. I've made some changes in order to save at least a little bit of money on gas as well, but the reason the prices are a little bit lower right now aren't really good, and they potentially lead to even worse places. And of course, as with everything, the Bible tells us what to do, what we should have been doing, and what we need to do now. First, the borrower is the slave to the lender. This applies to the individual and the federal government. Carrying a debt means that the government is borrowing and is beholden to the lender, whoever that might be. I understand that loans happen, and as much as Dave Ramsey would probably murder me for saying it, yes, I get the fact we take out loans for some things. But for toys? For vacations? For something bigger or fancier than you actually need so that people can see you with that? Just because you can afford the monthly payment doesn't mean you can afford the thing. At the manufacturing facility I worked at in the early 2000s, we hit a point where they basically chopped out all overtime for the hourly guys. If I had wanted a nearly new tricked out truck, a camper, motorhome, new motorcycle, or any of a wide selection of other toys, I could have taken my pick. The bulletin board filled up quickly. Unfortunately, at that time, I was already in debt deeper than I should have been. Unfortunately, I've had to learn my lessons as well. Second, put life into an eternal perspective. 
a pretty wise individual in the Bible. You may have heard of him, Jesus. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm as guilty as anyone, but we need to realize that earthly stuff isn't really that important. As I'm getting older, I see less and less point in doing some of the expected things. When I was younger, I had the thumping sound system in the car. I'd like to get the newest gadgets, but now I look at cars as those things that will basically rust away eventually, or mechanically fail beyond the point that makes sense to fix them, so why would I put a ton of money into tricking it out? Granted, I'm not married, which obviously would play a part in this, but I see no burning need to be in a constant mode of remodeling various rooms in the house. Who am I trying to impress? If I have to throw out my perfectly working appliances so I can have the newest style appliances, is that a good use of my money? Would my money be better spent, at least in part, by donating to charities that are getting the gospel to the world or working to save the unborn? How much is that new bathroom worth to me? I'm not saying I don't remodel or update, or that you shouldn't. But I won't go in debt to do it, and I have a hard time doing it just to do it. I need to have more than just wanting in order to do it. At the same time, when I do spend on something, I'd rather spend more for quality and reliability. It's a better use of money in the long run. And although I don't believe the tithe is a mandate for Christians in the New Covenant, I believe that's a good place to start with your giving. And I realize that what I just quoted Jesus as saying was only partially regarding money, but that's the focus of this review, so that's why I'm highlighting that aspect. Now let me just say this, don't take this as me making a law where there is no law. I'm not saying anyone must think the way I think or do what I do, but what we all need to do is bring our finances to God. Let the Holy Spirit, through your conscience, guide you. Do not violate your conscience. If you're going to buy that new car, but your conscience is nagging you that you should be doing something else with that money or that it's too much or whatever, don't buy that car. If you're thinking about buying that car and you bring it to God and your conscience is clear, well, then buy it, as long as you can actually afford it. Remember, in situations where there is no clear biblical law one way or the other, your conscience is your guide. But to violate your conscience is sin for you. It may not be sin for someone else, but if your conscience is telling you no and you ignore that and do it anyway, that is sin. Just remember the words found in Hebrews, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Third, be willing to sacrifice for the greater things. The Bible tells us to honor and obey our parents. The Bible tells us to listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. The Bible tells us, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In Mark 7, we see Jesus being schooled by the Pharisees about how his disciples don't wash properly before they eat. So, I mean, what could Jesus possibly say to that? <laughs> well, he starts with calling them hypocrites. Then he explains using Isaiah that they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. As he, let's say, firmly dismantles their adherence to tradition, as opposed to the actual commands and laws given to Moses by God, he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
Basically, they use the church or synagogue as a little intermediary for their money laundering schemes. Oh, sorry, Pop, I know you need some assistance. I know you took care of me and raised me, but I've given all my assets to God, and you know how that goes. You'll just have to figure it out for yourself. Tithing, as we define it these days, is good. Offerings are good. Charitable donations are good. But if you're not taking care of your family, if your parents are alive and need assistance and you're not honoring them by taking care of them, well, I mean, does it sound like that's a good idea? And at the same time, if you're saying that you either give to the church or charity or take care of your family while still, let's call it for what it is, wasting money elsewhere, how would you justify that to God? Look, Money sucks. Let's just be plain spoken about it. The fact that we need to make money so we can spend money, and the fact that there are so many needs and infinitely more wants, and they all compete for our finite amount of money, is frustrating at best. But that's the world we live in. I've said before that I believe the perfect socioeconomic system is a theocratic socialism, but the only ruler that can rule that system justly is Jesus, and the only way for that system to work is to remove sin. That said, I think that this was how the original creation was designed. God as the ruler, the people would have worked to tend the garden, applying their time, energy, and talents fully while only taking what they needed. And I think this is how this creation will be remade when this epoch of our existence comes to an end. But in our current situation, we have very good economic systems, one better than all the rest, that are all being exploited and destroyed, and we have very terrible economic systems that, at best, destroy everything they touch. And right now we're seeing these systems converge. We're seeing things most of us have never seen before. The beauty of living in the United States, the blessing, is that we won't come crashing down all at once. So what I'm doing, and what my recommendation to you would be, is to use this time to reevaluate your personal financial situation. Figure out what's most important to least important. Restructure how you allocate your money. Look for ways to save or spend more wisely. Make sure you are or can offer assistance to your family if needed. If everything turns around quickly and God allows this nation to continue on mostly the same, well, you'll be in a much better position. If we're headed for the next Great Depression, you'll be more able to weather the storm with a plan you've already developed. The high gas prices may be leading American drivers to shift their lifestyle habits, like this article says, but let's look past the frustration and annoyance, and let's look at this as possibly a divine wake-up call, a chance to shift our lifestyle habits for the good, a chance to better align our finances biblically, and a chance to be the right people at the right time that are prepared to show the love of God through our ability to help in whatever form, if or when, the real hardships come. Have you ever heard of the Overton Window? The Overton Window is a political philosophy of proposed policy acceptance by the general population. I'll explain that word salad in a moment. This idea was developed by Joseph Overton, an engineer and a political scientist born in 1960, tragically killed when he crashed his ultralight in 2003. Even more tragically, that was only a few weeks after he was married. The idea of the Overton window has its origins in evaluating a potential policy that a lawmaker would like to introduce and how extreme that policy can stray from the currently accepted norm before getting too crazy for the people to accept. This theory has been modified slightly and adapted to many scenarios. For example, say you want your kid to eat their carrots, but that kid just ain't gonna do it. Well, you could put Brussels sprouts on their plate, which no one in their right mind should ever want to eat. Just look at them. And when the kid freaks out, you say, fine. Look, if you eat these carrots instead, I'll let you slide on the Brussels sprouts. 
The kid, still not happy, but much happier to be eating the carrots, will muscle those down. You win. You wanted them to eat the carrots, so you presented a policy that was completely unacceptable, and when the peasants revolted, you backed the policy down to something that now appears reasonable, but it shifted the window much farther than was originally desired. Take our gas prices. How happy have you been that gas has come all the way down to the low $4 range on average now? What a relief, right? Don't think about the fact that you used to have it a couple dollars per gallon cheaper only a few years ago. Well, I think this is what's being done with our semi-forced vehicle choices. I think we're being Overton windowed on both the range and cost of the choices we're being given in electric vehicles. And I think there's something maybe even bigger that's going on. Now, personally, they can take their electric cars and launch them into the sun for all I care. I'm not interested in one at all. And I love the feeling of fast acceleration. But I'd rather have a nice gas engine pull not quite as hard than to be driving a hard-pulling electric vehicle. That's me. You may love the idea of an EV. That said, we're being sold a bill of goods. If you want to avoid a second mortgage or a dark web sale of a kidney, the range of the vehicle you'll get will be quite limited. If you want a longer range vehicle, well, you're going to pay. And no matter what, you're going to be paying much more for overall a much less usable vehicle than you ever wanted to. And look, I know I keep talking about EVs on this podcast here, but the ridiculousness of them keeps being revealed little by little. It's like when Charlie Bucket slowly peeled the wrapper off of the Wonka scrumdiddlyumptious bar to see if the golden ticket was gleaming under there. I've got three articles for this review that I want to lump together to show you that we're being played. And by 2030, as is the plan will not only be begging for an electric vehicle and 300 mile range is just fine. I'm cool with a few hours, you know, to charge it up. Just wait and see. We'll be begging for much more than that. Found on MotorTrend.com, headline, How much can the Ford F-150 Lightning tow? So they start off with giving you the specs. The new all-electric Lightning is rated to tow from 5,000 to 10,000 pounds, but to tow the 10,000, you need the XLT or the Lariat model with the extended range battery and the max trailer tow package, which gives you even more battery and better motor cooling. Getting that package will cost you just over $75,000. As a comparison, I went on to Ford's site. Price to 2022 Ford Lariat the more pricier of the two trims. I added the 5-liter V8, the max towing package, a few other options. I could have really tricked it out if I wanted to, but it was already pretty nice, and what I had came to just over $60,000, which is still insanity from my perspective, but it's not $75,000. Now, Motor Trend did their test with the Platinum trim without the max trailer tow upgrade, so it could only tow up to 7,700 pounds. But being the top-of-the-line trim, it came in at a cool $92,669. They set the climate control to 72 degrees, turned the headlights on, had the radio playing, a very generic average user configuration for a vehicle. They wanted to average about 70 miles per hour on the 80-mile round-trip test route they had decided on, but due to some construction, we're only able to hit between 64 and 67 miles per hour on average, but this was consistent among the tests. They ran three towing tests, one with a 17-foot, 
3,140-pound travel trailer. The next with a larger 28-foot, 5,260-pound travel trailer. And the last with the largest 34-foot, 7,218-pound travel trailer. Using the battery usage for the 80-mile trip, the plan was to extrapolate out to how far you could actually go for these three scenarios. This particular version of truck is rated at a combo city highway driving, single occupant, no towing range of 300 miles. Motor Trend apparently did a previous test with this truck and got 255 miles of range, which, which isn't promising already. They state that they were warned beforehand to expect the range to be cut in half when towing. And I've heard this warning multiple times with the caveat that, uh, look, the fuel-based trucks cut their mileage in about half when towing also. So, so you know. Without going into the bulk of their review, what were their results? Well, uh, not great. The calculated range from smallest to largest trailer were 115 miles, 100 miles, and 90 miles, respectively. Remember, the round trip was 80 miles, so that largest trailer maxed out the $93,000 truck. At a speed of 65 miles per hour, you could travel for, what, about one and a quarter hours before having to stop to charge? Now, they point out, because Motor Trend is still woke like all the rest, that if you cherry-pick the right trim, you can actually do better. You know, getting all the options on a different package, you can get a range of 320 miles. Of course, if that works out the same as the claimed 300-mile range that actually got 255 miles and then tow the big trailer and yada yada, what do you get? 100 miles? Maybe 110? You're not really winning here. Second article found on MotorBiscuit.com headline, How Much Range Does the F-150 Lightning Have? So they give the same basic EPA range, the EPA that's always wrong for both fuel and electric on the high side, they give the same configurations and towing capacity. They also point out that the max towing of the largest lightning package is 10,000 pounds as compared to the 14,000 pound towing capacity of the gas-powered F-150. In a test that this site didn't do, they only summarized, they said the model that was being used showed a full charge range of 282 miles that dropped to 160 miles when the 6,000-pound trailer and dimensions were entered into the computer, which dropped to 150 miles after only 6 miles of driving, and after 50 miles, the battery was at 20% charge remaining. So they stopped the test. What they did add was charging times. If you just basically plug it into the wall, a 120-volt charger, you'll need about 64 hours to charge it fully. So you'll want to step up to at least a level 2 240-volt charger, which drops that all the way down to a mere 12 to 14 hours. If you use a supercharger, a level 3, you can go from 15 to 80%, so you're, you're adding about 65%, in a lightning, pun intended, fast 45 minutes. But if you're in more of a hurry, it'll only take 10 minutes to add uh, an entire 50 miles of range, unless you're towing in which case 10 minutes will add what, maybe 15 miles? But, and here's the pitch, you're going to save 40% on maintenance because you don't have spark plugs, oil, and the article said timing plugs, which 
I've never heard of and in looking up aren't really a thing that I can find. I think they're talking about timing belts or chains and then the oft used and more. Also, the cost per mile is cheaper because using practically free electrons is cheaper than gas to the tune of, they claim, 6.1 cents per mile compared to 10.1 cents per mile for gas. Now, seeing as many of us don't have 64 hours to charge the battery, they recommend a $4,000 level 2 charger, which also has installation costs. Now, while you're towing for dozens of miles between stops, you're thinking of how you can use your time the most efficient way possible during those stops, right? I know they say you can get out and stretch your legs and use the bathroom, get something to eat all while that battery quickly charges an entire two-thirds of the capacity in about 45 minutes on a supercharger. But really, do you need to do all of those things once an hour? Which is what you'd be doing if you're towing a moderately sized trailer using a supercharger. If you can find one every 80-ish miles that works, that isn't being used. And are we sure that we're going to save money? We all thought, regardless of if you want an EV or not, that charging would be cheaper, at least on the surface, than gas. And you can charge at home for, for 64 hours, or on the go, all cheaper than filling the tank. Well, found on AutoEvolution.com headline, New Tesla Model 3 owner finds that supercharging is more expensive than getting gas. Oh, boy. So the gist of this article is that a new Tesla Model 3 owner started using the Tesla supercharger network to electron up, and he quickly found out that it was costing him a bunch of green money. The opening teaser says, quote, but there's an upside to the story. Ooh, I mean, that sounds promising. Let's see what it is. So apparently one and a half years ago, the cost per kilowatt hour on a supercharger was 25 cents. Now it's 58 cents. That's an increase of a bunch of cents. The first charge up this new owner undertook was relatively small, but the app showed that he paid $4 uh, more for that charge than he would have paid for gas. And the article is quick to remind us that uh, that's gas at $5 a gallon, which will hopefully, once we get these Marxists out of office, not be the norm. So in reading the article, the silver lining is that uh, although yes... If all you did was use the superchargers, well, let's quote the article here, you know, just for accuracy's sake. Quote, what we know by now is that it's not very cheap. However, having this option is a great way of making sure you're on the move promptly. Charging up to 80% is done easily and ends fast. Now remember, ends fast is 45 minutes if you go from 15 to 80% charge. So let's do a little math. Say your range with your trailer is 100 miles, but you're only using 65% of your charge range. That means your range is 65 miles, which means you're stopping every hour to charge that 65% of your battery back up at 45 minutes a pop. <laughs> Keep in mind, pumping in about 18 gallons of gas will take you, what, 10 minutes? So your trip is now 75% longer than you expected. If you're hauling a travel trailer, that usually means you're on vacation of some sort. Say you go, I don't know, half a day away, about seven or 800 miles. That's typically about 13 hours of driving with stops, but not anymore. Nope, because you decided to go woke and go broke because you decided to buy into the lie about global warming. Your trip is now about 21 or 22 hours. <laughs> Sweet. Oh, wait, 
My bad, I, I didn't finish the whole quote. Here, let me finish the quote now. Quote, Longer trips can be completed without range anxiety, if other factors like queuing don't come into play. <laughs> Wait, you say, what, what was that last bit? Ah, yes, queuing. You know, because there are basically no chargers, super or otherwise, as compared to gas pumps. Yes, they go on to say, quote, The only thing that's still a worry for Tesla drivers who want to travel long distances is the reliability of the charging stations, and if they're not being occupied by other EV owners who don't want to move their car after finishing charging up. Um, who's been sitting there for 45 minutes at a supercharger and doesn't have that feeling of panic rising from the pit of their very being that they've got to get out of there? But yes, when taking these trips, you need to plan it around charging stations, hope that the app is up to date so you don't roll into a broken supercharger, and hope there isn't a line of even one or two people at the charger because start multiplying 45 minutes by the number of cars, yours included. They do give the rest of their silver lining, though. There are ways to make driving an EV more economical. You can just charge at home. Just plug that truck in and Overnight, while you sleep for 64 hours, you know, over two and a half days, that truck will be filled up and ready to go on the morning of the third day. You can also charge at these level two or three chargers at night, as the cost is usually lower for electricity at night. Maybe. So plan to flip your sleeping schedule and just have your wonderful vacation at night. Now look, before you cry foul, I know I mix the Tesla and the Tesla charging network with the Ford truck and whatever they charge on. I know that Teslas and smaller cars will charge their batteries a little bit faster, but the reality is, this truck, if I were to label it anything, I'd label it a moronic failure. If I were to be kind, I'd say that this is nothing but either a way to signal your woke environmental virtue, or it's a toy to play with, a very expensive toy, or it'll be owned by someone that's going to be very disappointed and will gladly sell it at a substantial loss just to be rid of it. Now, for reference, the Ford F-150 Gas Edition, the one I priced out for $60,000 versus the $75,000 for the Lightning, it'll get about 460 miles of range on a tank of 26 gallons. Let's say you cut that in half by towing your moderately-sized trailer. Now you're down to 230 miles, which is close to the unladen range that Motor Trend found the F-150 actually was able to do. But when you fill that 26-gallon tank, let's say at a painfully slow pump, you're looking at, what, 15 minutes to go from basically 0% gas charge to 100% gas charge? Then go another 230 miles and stop at one of practically infinity gas stations all around the country. Look, I know new technology takes time, and what is being attempted is an entire shift in the structure of our daily lives, and not a natural shift, a push, a shove into this next world. We're being Overton windowed, and people apparently are oblivious to it. If you live in reality, you know that these cars and trucks will not replace what we have on the road, not by 2030 or 2040 or even 2050. If it was just battery technology, maybe. If it was just electricity generation capacity, maybe. If it was just transitioning to solar and wind and other virtually useless sources, maybe. But it's all of these three, and more, all at the same time. Now, as I said in a past episode, the end goal is not for us all to own our very own electrical car that can go as far as a gas car, as fast as a gas car, charge up as quickly as filling up a gas car, that costs the same as a gas car. No, 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 no. The end goal is for us to not have our own cars. 
the end goal, mark my words, is to push us all into the wonderful, affordable, clean public transport. And since this would reduce the freedom we have to travel, our radius of home to work and home to extended family, home to church, home to the store, those things will shrink. As that radius shrinks, we become more and more isolated communities, and as we start to clump into these communes, we become much easier to control. Since the invention of the car, being able to hop in and hit the open road has been a symbol of freedom. That's not what they want us to feel. The Overton window will be the push into these junky cars that don't go far enough, that don't charge fast enough, with no resale value, that are too expensive to repair, and are destroying the planet whenever we scrap them. Additionally, we won't have enough electrical generating power to charge them all, and have lights and heat or AC or whatever else also. We will cry for someone to do something and just save us. And the Overton window shifts. The Marxists that want to get this world under more tight control will back us back down from that insane policy of electric cars. Why would those darned Republicans want those things anyway? Trust me, they'll spin it. Here, let's do light rail and bus lines. Then you can get rid of that piece of junk and you'll be free again. Yeah, I know, this may sound dystopian. And I'm not saying that everyone is, you know, in on it. But as a logical thinker, there's literally nowhere else for this to go. What they're setting up will never succeed. It literally can't. So if it can't, and you know they know it can't, what is the point? And... For that matter, what is the point of grooming our kids to be gay and or transgender? What's the point in rushing out to get an untried injection that it's nothing like any vaccine we've ever had, just because we're told to do so? What's the point in pushing so hard to allow women to kill innocent unborn humans without restriction? And what's the point of trying to remove guns from the law-abiding gun owners because the criminals won't follow the rules? See, the only way any of these kinds of things succeed is if the people are ignorant. And in most cases, it's because they choose to be. It's just easier. And I get that. It is easier. But the Proverbs has much advice to give about being wise or being a fool. It says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. It says, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. It says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And it says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than a gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. And where does wisdom come from? Well, you can get insight, knowledge, and wisdom from parents, elders, teachers, pastors, YouTube, podcasts, books, and all sorts of things. But true wisdom must start at one place. Back to the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Our wisdom must start with fear of the Lord, and fear of the Lord comes by reading, understanding, and applying His words to our lives. The Bible tells us that there are two genders, and warns us about harming those considered to be weaker, like children, women, widows. 
The Bible tells us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made and to treat the image of God with respect. The Bible tells us that God knit us together in the womb, that before there was one day in your life, God already had all your days written out. The Bible tells us that we have the right to defend ourselves and that if we follow the laws, we should have nothing to fear from the authorities. The Bible does not tell us anything about gas or diesel or electric cars, but it does tell us that we are to use the earth and its resources and that we are not to worship the earth, which is exactly what we're doing. There is nothing wrong with wind and solar as sources of electricity. God gave us those too. There's nothing wrong with technological advancements that result in usable electric vehicles. The problem comes in when we, the average ignorant human, do it because we believe we're God and we must save this planet from ourselves. When we eliminate the real God of this creation and we eliminate the single source of absolute truth and wisdom, the only source we have is ourselves. And uh, look around, you see what uh, you see what we do on our own here. So to wrap this up, we see what's coming in the short term, we can easily project what's coming in the long term, and we can fairly easily make the case that we're being wrangled by people with intentions other than our greater good. We may not have the clout of uber-wealthy, we may not be power brokers, we may not be the most famous of politicians, but what we have is the truth, but only if we actually learn it and use it. We still have the ability, at least in this country, to stop giving in to fear porn, stop being intimidated by the bullies, stop being psychologically manipulated by heavily emotionalized anecdotes. Time appears to be running short, but by applying true wisdom, we can elect those that most closely reflect the true truth. We can push for policies and vote for laws that align with reality, not the fantasy world that's been psychologically manufactured for us. The Overton window doesn't work on a one-way track. It can be pushed back again, but it can only be pushed back using wisdom, and wisdom only comes from God, and God only speaks through the Bible. So let's get in the Word, let's learn from solid teachers and preachers, and let's start the long, hard process of pushing the window back toward reality and truth. On November 15th, 1777, only one day after my birthday, and a handful of years earlier, the Continental Congress of the newly declared United States of America adopted their first attempt at governance of this new country. This was right after a few battles, a year and a half after declaring independence, less than a year after Washington crossed the Delaware, and just as the fighting started ramping up. Although it was adopted at the end of 1777, it wasn't actually ratified as the law of the land until March 1st, 1781, when Maryland finally got off their duff and signed. Welcome to episode 4 of The American Genesis. Today we're going to start looking at the first shot that Congress took at governing a landmass about twice as large as the United Kingdom as we know it today. We know the outcome, and if you don't, spoiler alert, it didn't work. But keep in mind, the founders were in very difficult, very new territory. After living their whole lives under the rule of, and after having nothing but a history of, kings and lords, knowing the corruption and potential for absolute tyranny, they knew they could not present anything remotely close to that to the 13 colonies, or this already fragile confederation would fracture which would likely lead to a loss of the war and a loss of freedom, probably worse than it was before, as well as most assured public executions of the leaders of this traitorous rebellion. 
I still maintain that this country was divinely protected and established by God for his purposes, for his glory, and although God could have just as easily inspired them to write the perfect document the first time, just as he, through the Holy Spirit, inspired the biblical writings, when looking through history and personally looking at my own life, God allows us to kind of figure things out. This is not done for his amusement, watching us struggle and fail. This is done to allow us to gain wisdom. The best way to learn the better way or the right way is to screw something up the first time you try it. The Articles of Confederation were far from perfect, but they were also far from autocratic rule. And for the eight short years that it would be the governing document, much was learned that would be used in its replacement. As we did with the Declaration of Independence, we'll take the Articles of Confederation piece by piece as there's a lot to absorb. As of right now, it appears this will break down into four, five, maybe six episodes just to keep time reasonable and information manageable. So enough of me prattling on. Let's dig into the opening and the first few articles and see what we can glean. We read, To all to whom these presents shall come, we, the undersigned delegates of the states affixed to our names, send greeting, whereas the delegates of the United States of America in Congress assembled did on the 15th day of November, in the year of our Lord 1777, and in the second year of the independence of America, agree to certain articles of confederation and perpetual union between the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, in the new words following, viz., Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union between the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Article 1. The style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. Article 2. Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. Article 3. The said states hereby severally enter into a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, binding themselves to assist each other against all force offered to, or attacks made upon them, or any of them, on account of religion, sovereignty, trade, or any other pretense, whatever. Article 4. The better to secure and perpetuate mutual friendship and intercourse among the people of the different states in this union, the free inhabitants of each of these states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice, excepted, shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states, and the people of each state shall have free ingress and regress to and from any other state, and shall enjoy therein all the privileges of trade and commerce subject to the same duties, impositions, and restrictions as the inhabitants thereof, respectively, provided that such restrictions shall not extend so far as to prevent the removal of property imported into any state, to any other state, of which the owner is an inhabitant, provided also that no imposition 
duties, or restriction shall be laid by any state on the property of the United States or either of them. If any person guilty of or charged with treason, felony, or other high misdemeanor in any state shall flee from justice and be found in any of the United States, he shall, upon demand of the governor or executive power of the state from which he fled, be delivered up and removed to the state having jurisdiction of his offense. Full faith and credit shall be given in each of these states to the records, acts, and judicial proceedings of the courts and magistrates of every other state. Okay, so the first bit of this document simply started to lay out some ground rules for the states. As we delve deeper into the document in the upcoming episodes, it will move away from the interaction of the states with each other and more into the interaction of the states as a whole with the central federal government. What we do see here, though, is a twofold goal, the first being unity of the states and the second being the autonomy of the states. The states were allowed to set themselves up, generally however they desired. They were granted sovereignty, freedom, and independence. Now, there were some limitations. We'll discuss those in the next few episodes, but overall, each state had sovereignty. The heads and citizens of the states would have had two overarching polar opposite examples when thinking of sovereignty, the king and the king of kings. Whereas their former king was tyrannical, oppressive, dictatorial, Jesus, the king of kings, had not only more power, but ultimate power and control, and yet was loving and compassionate, and because he came to earth to live as a man, experiencing everything we experience, he is able to sympathize with the plight of man, even down to the personal, individual level. In my mind, giving each state sovereignty, with some general restriction that we'll read about soon, was a gamble, but it was a necessary gamble. This could have developed into little fiefdoms with little self-important tyrants, or it could have fallen into chaos with inept, incompetent leaders, but it had to be this way, as an authoritative central power structure would have nixed the deal before it had a chance to start. At the same time, agreement to these articles was binding the states into a loose union. I think of it as something like our treaty with NATO. Technically, if one country attacks a NATO country, all the rest of the NATO countries are supposed to take action. As the founders were very good at doing, they spelled out the big things rather than just stopping at, eh, we all help each other. Y'all cool with that? The bond among states would be specifically for attacks made on them by other forces regarding religion, sovereignty, or trade. The three main issues they had with the king, as well as other attacks made against them. Unlike what many would like to claim never existed or pretend never existed, or they simply wish never existed, the freedom of religion was a huge issue, and notice that the Congress wasn't mandating the belief or exclusion of any religions. Although I'd probably have a solid argument that the founders had Christianity specifically in mind, they were clearly smart, well-informed men. They knew that other beliefs existed, and that man should be free to hear and decide to ignore the truth and try their own way without harassment. Moving on, have you ever thought what it would be like to have to pass through some sort of a gate or inspection station whenever you cross a state line? I travel through multiple states when I go see family. I can't imagine the waste of time having to stop at the border of each state to declare my intention and tell you what I'm carrying, possibly undergo an inspection. We also don't need to seek permission of our governor or the governors of the states we travel through to ensure that we can move through safely, as had to be done in some regions of the British Empire. What about not being able to purchase something and take it back home with you? What would we ever do without postcards or 
shot glasses or teacups or baseball caps to remember our trip to wherever. Notice that these rights extended to the inhabitants, the people of the states. It didn't specify color, origin, ethnicity. In fact, the only people that were not afforded these rights were generally stated criminals. Now, clearly, there were states that had slaves, but there were also states that had various ethnicities, including those from Africa, or those we'd consider black or people of color, that were living free in other states. Nowhere in this document did it limit the rights of any free citizen. Because states could make their own laws and rules regarding slavery within their states, this wasn't quite Galatians 3.28, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But this is along those lines. It applied to all people, because freedom was for everyone, as long as you weren't a criminal. You can already see what the Congress was trying to do unify the country as one, unify the people as one, but remove the potential for a strong, central, tyrannical ruler. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can look back and see what they were trying to do, and we can see where the chinks in the armor were built into this model. But this was the path that God had for us as a country, to learn what works and what doesn't work, and why it doesn't work. Next week, in Episode 5, we'll pick up with Article 5, where we'll start to build our understanding of our first attempt at creating a type of central government based on unity, but autonomy. That was strong, but not too strong. That had central powers, but not oppressively so. This was a very thin line the founders were trying to walk, but more on that next time, in our next episode of The American Genesis. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.